an incredibly beautiful picture and a, a wonderful reminder. You know, communion is about remembering. It's a remembrance, and yet we're to live the entirety of our lives in remembrance. It's as if we're communion going out into the world. We're letting people, giving people that reminder of what Jesus has done. Just a really, really beautiful song. Grateful for that today. I do feel like these questions that we're doing, you need to just start with, forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. I mean, that, that would just solve everything right there, man. I, it's like confession every Sunday. Wow, this is crazy. I'm glad it's working. This is good. We should have done this when you were five, and we'd be all good to go. Hmm. Okay, so here's what I'm going to do. This is a little different than normal. We're going to do kind of a pre-teach and then the main teach. Uh, pre why I'm doing a pre-teach today is because we're going to talk about a concept you see in the Bible in the Old Testament. You've been reading it. We've been talking about it. The concept of the promised land. And I think it's important for us to know what the promised land is, what it's all about, you know, why in the world does the promised land exist, what's happening here. So I'd like to just go ahead and walk through, give you an idea, first of all, of where in the world is the promised land when you look. And so we've got to go to the other side of the world. And this, this big green space here you see is what we commonly refer to as the Middle East. So this is the area that, that uh, the Israelites, the Jews, as well as the Arabs live, the Middle East. And, and as you're looking at the Middle East, let me go ahead and put a little red circle up there. There's, there's Israel. There's the land of Israel. It's, it's kind of incredible when you look at all of this side of the globe, and we know there's another side too, the side we live on, that of all the places in the world, that little teeny thing is what everybody fights over. About 50 miles wide, a couple hundred miles long, this is the place everybody battles for. It's just, it's amazing. So that gives you a little bit of a location, where it is, what it's all about. When you think of the land of Israel, your land of Israel in your mind should look something like this. So you got the tribe of Dan, you got Dan at the north, you got Judea down at the south, and then you've got toward the top of the top of the nation you have the Sea of Galilee, then a nice line going down to the Dead Sea, which happens to be the lowest place in all the earth. If you ever get a chance to be there, the, it's, it's still, there's, there's a deathly quiet there. It's just crazy. You don't have to use sunscreen. It's so low that the nasty rays can't get through. I'm not joking on that. So anyway, um, that's typically what people think of as the land of Israel. However, let me say, that is not the promised land. Or that's not all of the promised land. It, we go back to Genesis chapter 15. We've already been there. Talking about the covenant that God has with Abraham. And then, and, then he, and then he walks among those pieces of animal on either side. He makes this covenant. And this is what, what he says in the covenant. He says, I'm going to give your offsprings this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates River. Now think about it. The river of Egypt. What do you think that is? Yeah, you're going, Nile, like you're scared. Yes, the Nile. It's like the only water in all of Egypt, okay? So it's from the Nile River all the way over to the Euphrates River, which is over in Iraq. He says, this is the land I'm giving to you. This is the land I'm giving to your family. So, so take a peek at this. That's the promised land. That's the land that God promised to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their descendants, which I think there's a beautiful spiritual picture in here. How many times as they're going in to take possession of the land does God give a command and he says, follow my command fully, wholeheartedly, completely. And time and time again, the Bible tells us the people obeyed, but they did not obey completely. And so what ends up happening? Well, out of all that land, that's what they end up with. 
Here's the promise, and here's what they get. And I just have to wonder how many times we've missed out on the fullness of the promise of God because we obeyed, but we did not obey completely. We didn't go all the way. We didn't do all of what God said. We, we've obeyed some, good enough to get a little red mark. Yay, we obeyed, but, but we didn't obey completely. God calls for complete obedience. So what makes the promised land so promising? What is this all about? Well, first of all, the promised land is a land of promise because God promised it. He said, Abraham, I'm giving this to you and your family. So there's a, there's a spiritual side to this promise. But there's another part of the promise that's important for us to see. In many ways, this land is incredible. It's strategic. It's just, there's so many things about this land that are wonderful compared to everything that's around it. You see a lot of brown around the promised land? What, what's going on there? A lot of desert. A lot of desert. And typically, what we see here is, this is the known world at the time. You've got Egypt, a powerhouse. You've got Mesopotamia, a powerhouse. Babylon, you've got all these things going on here, right? How do they get from one place to the other? They didn't cut across the desert. They go up, around, down Canaan, onto Egypt, and back across. This is, a, this is the trade. This is the highway. This is living on 55 and 80. And they're just, they're, this is where the trucks are going, right? Up and back and up and back. So, so commerce is happening through this place. Uh, the other thing that's happening, war is happening through this place. Egypt decides to go to battle with Mesopotamia. Guess what they're going to do? They're going to fight right on through Canaan. I mean, this, Canaan ends up being kind of the Poland and Hungary of World War I. You know, they, they're the battleground. They're the ones that up and back, Asia and Europe are fighting. They're the battleground. Here, Egypt and the rest of the world are fighting. Canaan is the battleground. So, so you've got this thing going on that they're kind of, they're the crossroad of the world. The other thing that's incredible about this place is that it is well watered. It's well watered. Let me, let me put up another image. This might take you back to high school or not. Do you remember the Fertile Crescent? Remember that concept? I know you struggle with the Nile, so I'm thinking, wow, Fertile Crescent, what are we doing here? I look at this, look at the green. <whistles> Creates like a little moon, doesn't it? There's, this is the Fertile Crescent. Desert, 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 desert. But through this area, through this area, there's water. Through this area, there's fertile land. We can grow things in this area. And, and the land of Canaan, Israel, of all places, is incredibly well watered. You have the Golan Heights to the north. You have snow-capped mountains. And as that snow melts, it comes down and forms the headwaters of the Jordan River. And then the Jordan flows on in to the Sea of Galilee. And then it keeps flowing all the way down the side of this nation. So what you find quite literally is a desert land that blooms. It's a desert land that blooms. Guess what? You need water to survive. And Israel has water. So you can see why it was an important strategic place to live. Then you also have protection. To the north, there are the Golan Heights, which was protection from Lebanon and Syria, nations to the north that might come in and invade. It was an incredibly beautiful place. It, was, it had natural boundaries. But like I said before, one of the things about it, it's a place where battles happened. It was kind of the battleground of the world. So part of what would happen spiritually, this would be a place where the people would have to rely on God. They just have to rely on God because time and time again, there was going to be a war going on in their land and they were going to have to rely on God for their salvation and for their protection. 
Now, one thing we have to ask is, as we come into the book of Exodus, why are the Israelites not in the promised land? What in the world are they doing in Egypt? Why are they down there? Well, we know for a surface reason they're down there because of a famine. There's a famine in the land of Canaan. And Jacob says, we got to get out of here. Joseph's already in Egypt. They take all the sons, all the brothers, the whole family, and they head down to Egypt. And the Bible tells us in verse 5, 70 people, so this is like a decent-sized family reunion, 70 people head on down to Egypt, and there they are to stay for a while. But there are also some spiritual reasons going on that are pretty beautiful. God, in effect, when he sends them to Egypt, creates a greenhouse effect where his family can grow. Had these 70 people stayed there in the land of Canaan, they may very well have been trampled by the wars going on. Had they stayed there in Canaan, they may have taken on the gods of the land, but God puts them under the protection of Egypt where they can grow. And the Bible tells us by chapter 12 that they go from 70 people to 430 years later, 600,000 men. You know what that means? There are ladies and there are babies too. Or in other words, there are over a million Israelites by the time they're ready to take off back to the promised land. God uses Egypt as a place, as a greenhouse to grow his family, which is a beautiful lesson for us. How many times God will actually take us and put us in a place of seeming danger in order to protect us. It's just, it's crazy and it's beautiful. There's one other spiritual thing going on here. We read in... um, Genesis chapter 15, that um, it says, in the fourth generation, Abraham's, God's talking to Abraham, he says, in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back, for the sins of the Amorites have not yet reached their full measure. You read that verse and you go, what's up with that? So they had to sin a little bit more before God would punish them. That's one way to look at it. Let me give you another way to look at it. God always offers the opportunity for repentance. He always, think of Nineveh. Jonah's sent for what reason? You're sinful, you're about to be destroyed, but there's still time, there's still hope you could change. God's offering the people of the land the opportunity to repent. They do not take it, and 430 years later, the Israelites come in and take the land. But that just kind of gives you an an overview, an idea of what's going on with the promised land, both where it is and why it's called a a promised land. So let's go ahead and shift now to uh, announcements and offering. Our servers are going to come right now. And uh, you have some announcements for us, I do believe. Yeah, so next week's a big week, uh, the 18th specifically, because we have our annual Turkey Bowl, which is going to be happening at noon uh, over at the Shanahan Junior High soccer field. Again, it's for everybody. Uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. So if you want to come out and play some flag football with us, uh, it'd be a good time. So it's going to be from 12 to 2. Uh, and then later in the day, from 5 to 8, we're extending Revive a little bit because uh, Chad Haug has generously offered to cook us Thanksgiving dinner. So we're going to have dinner and like a a fun game night at Revive. Again, that's next Sunday. So again, parents, five to eight uh, next week. Uh, But yeah, so it's going to be a jam-packed day, which is really cool. Um, If you get the links, which again, you can get the links every Sunday morning at 8 a.m., which contains all of our announcements, by going to southfieldchurch.com, scrolling all the way to the bottom and hitting that blue plus mark, and signing up through there, or you can go to the welcome desk and get signed up there. Um, but if you have the links this morning, one of your links says "Blessed Child" today. Uh, you can every Christmas we do something really cool around Southfield, and this year we're 
literally blessing children. Uh, so if you want, you can go out to the welcome desk today and receive a, a name tag. What that tag is going to give you is literally a name of a very real kid, at, an at-risk kid uh, in Joliet. It's going to tell you one thing that that kid needs and one thing that that kid wants. What we're giving you the opportunity to do is take that tag, go buy those things, wrap it up nice and neat, uh, stick that tag on the present, and then bring it back to the welcome desk by December 2nd. So again, with Thanksgiving coming, we, just want, we want to make sure that we got this out uh, in time for you. So if you want to help an at-risk kid in our community, you can go out to the welcome desk and grab one of those tags today. I, I do believe the folder said that the uh, flag football game is in October so yeah. that was October just something stuff. we need to call attention to, that yeah. it actually November, November 18th, not October 18th. Yeah. So there was you can a, plan for next year. Yeah. It, it still won't be in October. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But that's a good thing. Good deal. Uh, before I forget, since <clears throat> we're talking months and mm -hmm. all that good stuff, Arctic Blast registration is open for high school and junior high. So again, make sure that you're getting on the website, getting registered for that, uh, because we have that coming up sooner than later. Very good. So, thanks so much. I don't know, you've probably heard this statement before. I remember hearing it when I was a kid, and even to, these, to this day. America is a very young nation. America is a very young nation. Uh, I was 13 years old when the bicentennial happened in 1776. And I remember hearing this statement, America was a very young nation. And, and, I, and I'd be kind of like, I'm 19, okay, whatever. <laughs> you, you didn't know Nile River. So... Um, no, that's okay. You know what's funny? I practiced that so many times and goofed it every time I practiced it. Anyway, um, uh, Southfield Church, Shanahan. Yeah, okay, we're back. Um, so as a kid, I remember hearing this, you know, America's a very young nation. And I remember at that time kind of thinking, you know, 35-year-olds are like inches away from death. How can, how, can, how can America be a young nation at 200 years old? Here we are at almost 250 or 241. Now, don't you think about this? At 241, we are still not three-quarters of the way through the time that the Israelites spent in captivity in Egypt. That's crazy. The entire time our nation has existed, and we've not yet come close to finishing out the time that this nation spent in Egypt. From the time Jacob traveled with his sons uh, to the arms of Joseph in Egypt to the night of the Passover is about 430 years the first part of their time is spent as welcome guests in the land of Egypt, a place where, where they are welcomed, where they are loved, where they are received. The last 200, uh, slavery, slavery. 400 years raises a question. How long is too long to hope? How long should we pray before we just give up? How long is it reasonable to hold on and hope for something. Today we're going to look at the first 12 chapters of Exodus. We're going to get acquainted with the fledgling nation of Israel. We're going to meet a deliverer with shaking knees named Moses. And most importantly, we will witness the powerful and awesome hand of God as he encourages us to never, 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 never give up hope. As the book of Genesis opens... Uh, God makes this great promise to his people, and this great promise seems to be in jeopardy. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, they're dead now. And their descendants are slaves in a foreign land. And we're left to wonder what will happen to the promise. Will they end up in that promised land? When you go to Exodus chapter 1, 
1 to 7, it tells us all the people that went to Egypt, verse 5 tells us there were 70 in all, they're all there. And it says in, in time, Joseph and all of his brothers died, ending that entire generation, but their descendants, the Israelites, had many children and grandchildren. In fact, they multiplied so greatly that they became extremely powerful and they filled the land. The family grew like crazy. Like I already said, they went from 70 people to the time you read in chapter 12, verse 37, that you have 600,000 men plus women and children. It is a massive, massive group of people that grows in 430 years. I mean, it's one of the great understatements of Scripture when the Bible says in verse 7 that they were fruitful and multiplied. This family grew into a formidable force. God's been at work protecting and preserving this nation. Verse 8 comes and we read, eventually a new king came to power in Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph or what Joseph had done. This is an ominous verse. If you're reading this, you're going, uh-oh. It's kind of like when we watch a movie and it starts to get quiet and then the violins, wee, 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 wee. uh-oh, we're in trouble. Or I don't know why it is, when the fool in the movie walks toward the noise, instead of running for his life, you're like, haven't you ever watched a movie? Run! That's what's going on here. The people are reading this and going, trouble's coming. Big trouble is coming. This new pharaoh comes to power about 200 years after Joseph. And I want to ask you a question. What do pharaohs do? Not just the literal ones, but the figurative ones. What do the pharaohs do in your life? The pharaohs of life tend to drain us of hope. These rulers in our life, they tend to drain us of our hope. He's a politically shrewd individual. He sees his family growing, and he draws a wise conclusion that the family is growing fast enough that they could join forces with an enemy, they could revolt and leave Egypt to have to do all their own work. So he embarks on a, on a series of strategic moves he believes will limit the population of Joseph's family. In verse 11, it says he oppresses them. This strategy has the opposite effect. They increase in number the more they're oppressed. Next, realizing more drastic measures are necessary, he implements a covert birth control policy in verse 15. There's this pair of women, Sifra and Pua, and they serve as midwives for Israel. Now, they're probably not the only two. It's a large nation. They oversee the process. Pharaoh wants them to kill the babies as they're born. Kill the male babies as they're born. Just go ahead and do away with their life. But the midwives fear God and can't go through with this. Pharaoh is furious. He summons them. He says, what's going on here? The, the, the women say, these women are so healthy, healthy that they give birth even before we show up. According to the midwives, I mean, Israeli women are experienced record delivery times. They're just, I mean, a lot of taxi gap babies. You know, it's just happening all the time. Now, just an aside, some of you are wondering, does this verse justify lying? especially when the cause is righteous? And the biblical answer is no. Lying is never justified. It never is justified. But here's the deal. If you're ever forced into committing mass murder by a genocidal maniac, and the only way you can imagine to subvert the plan of a genocidal maniac is to lie, I personally will probably not criticize you. Okay? But... If you use this passage to try to justify the kind of self-serving deceit that many of us engage in that destroys trust and shatters relationship, you're making a big mistake. This passage does not justify lying. 
Pharaoh determines that the only way to control the Israelite population is to enlist the entire citizenry. So he gives the order that every boy child must be thrown into the Nile River. And the river ran red with blood, the blood of little babies. Can you identify your Pharaoh today? The Pharaoh that's robbing you of hope? In some area, you are beaten down, you are discouraged, you feel like your prayers are worthless. Exodus teaches us an unimaginable lesson when our pharaohs are beating us down. Hope can often be found in our river of hopelessness. It's in the river of hopelessness itself that we find the hope that God offers. The torture designed by our pharaoh to control us can actually serve as our means of deliverance. The next part of the story gives us great reason to have hope in God. Exodus 2, 1 to 10, explains what happens with the birth and the deliverance of Moses. After 400 years that God foretold to Abraham, it's about to come to an end. It's time for a deliverer to come on the scene. Now, as human beings, if I'm writing this story, I would have brought in a foreign army. I would have brought in some tremendous force and delivered those people. Let's get them out of there. But God starts with a baby. Be warned. It's not the last time God will choose to deliver his people from hopelessness through a newborn baby. I love the way God does this. He places the deliverer right in the jaws of death. First, a God-fearing woman has a son, and rather than allowing him to be killed, she hides him in plain sight. What better place to hide the child from death than in the death trap itself? So this loving mother places her child in a basket in the river of blood. Now, I've had babies. A lot of you have too. And I'm pretty smart overall, right? I I notice things. I've learned one important fact about babies. They cry. They cry a lot. They cry when they are sad. They cry when they are hungry. They cry when they are wet. They cry when they are tired. They cry when they are strapped in a car seat in St. Louis on Telegraph Road and drive two hours and 45 minutes to 10 Pendleton Way in Bloomington, Illinois. They cry and they cry and they cry. Right, Shell? Yes, they cry. Poor little Brian used to sit in the back seat and say, just make her stop. Just make her stop. Babies cry. Guess what? This baby cried as well. In verse 6, he cried in the crying which should have betrayed him and said, soften the heart of his deliverer. By the way, his deliverer is Pharaoh's daughter. And this story, you, you can't make it up, right? When found... His sister, Miriam, who's watching from a distance, runs out and says, do you want me to find someone that can nurse the baby for you? Oh, that would be lovely, child. Guess who she goes and gets? Mom. And here's the cool part. Mom gets paid to nurse her baby. Such a deal. I mean, this, God, this is crazy. Pharaoh's daughter gives him a name that reminds him for the rest of the days, rest of his days of the miracle, Moses. Moses means I drew you out of the water. I drew you out of the water. Victory is resting in the jaws of death. The next time you think your situation is hopeless, would you pull out Exodus chapter 2 and read verses 1 to 10? 
The deliverer of Israel is rescued from the river of blood and becomes the adopted child of a man who is trying to keep the will of God from happening. Now, I want to shift a little bit here and move away from our need for deliverance to the fact that sometimes God calls us to be the deliverer. There are times that God calls on us to enter in and help somebody in their situation of hopelessness. Our focus may, be to tend, may tend to be to focus on our own need to be delivered, but we can't overlook the fact that God calls people to be deliverers, to help those who are seemingly in seemingly hopeless situations. And so as we look at the call of Moses, I hope you'll personalize this and see the lessons God might be trying to teach you as a potential deliverer. As Moses grows up, he finds himself between two worlds. He has concern for his people of origin. He knows he's Jewish. He knows he's an Israelite. And at the same time, he's been schooled and trained in Egypt. He's lived in Pharaoh's court. And this conflicted state finally comes to a head. It says, many years later, when Moses had grown up, he went out to visit his own people, the Hebrews, and he saw how hard they were forced to work. During this visit, he saw an Egyptian beat one of his own fellow Hebrews. And looking in all directions to make sure no one was looking, Moses killed the Egyptian and hid the body in the sand. The passage tells us he looked to the left, he looked to the right, but which way did he not look? He did not look up. He didn't look to God. He didn't think about what God might do. He didn't think about what God might say. He took matters into his own hands. He acted on sinful impulses rather than trusting God. And this reveals the first lesson for us as deliverers. Reality is, Moses is not the deliverer. God is. We are not the deliverers. God is. And we really need to keep that straight. Before Moses can be useful as a deliverer, he needs to be delivered from himself. He needs to learn that God is the deliverer. He needs to learn to control the temptation to take matters into, their own, into his own hands, which is something early deliverers tend to want to do. The look to the left and the look to the right was apparently not very effective. Pharaoh learned what Moses had done, put a price on his head, and once again we find a Bible character on the run. After the story of jo Jacob, we should be suspecting something. God is about to retool Moses. God's school of character formation is encountered when people are on the run. It is out of the wilderness that Moses will be taught by God how to lead his people, how to deliver them, not using his own strength, but relying on God's mighty power. Lesson one, God is the true deliverer, not me. I need to get out of my own way and let God use me and retool me for his purposes. Second lesson, deliverers have a heart for justice and can't help but get involved. Right off the bat, we see this in the heart of Moses. He has a passion for justice. He can't help but help the oppressed. A group of women is being hassled by some shepherds as a well. He steps in. He fights their battles. He ultimately marries one of the women that he rescued. Now married, Moses seems to have Egypt well in the rearview mirror. He has a family. He's become a shepherd, which, by the way, Egyptians find shepherding contemptible. He spends 40 years in Egypt another 40 away in the wilderness. Moses just seems to love life the way it is right now. Old times and places are a distant memory. Moses may have forgotten about the Israelites in Egypt, but God had not forgotten them. Meanwhile, back in Egypt, we read years passed, and the king of Egypt died, 
But the Israelites continued to groan under their burden of slavery. They cried out for help and their cry rose to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He looked down on the people of Israel and knew it was time to act. Now, just a, just a thought, but it's an important one. God remembered is not a way of saying God is forgetful. This isn't, you know, oh, where did I misplace my Israelites? I know they're somewhere, huh? There we go. Okay, good. I'm, go, I'm good to go. That's not what's going on here, okay? He remembered is a statement often used to say he's about to act. He's about to take action. The time is now. We're ready. The life of Moses become fairly ordinary and uneventful in Midian. Some might even characterize it as just plain boring. For about 40 years, he took care of sheep. But one day, in the middle of doing his job, everything changes. We read in chapter 3, verse 1, One day Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock far into the wilderness and came to Sinai, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire in the middle of a bush. Moses stared in amazement. Though the bush was engulfed by flames, it did not burn up. This is amazing, Moses thought to himself. Why isn't the bush burning up? I must go see it. Verse 3 indicates that Moses takes action, and that action is about to change his destiny. There's another version that puts it this way. Moses turned aside to see this great sight and why the bush was not burning up. There is a sense in which everything hinges on Moses' decision to turn aside. He doesn't have to do that. He could have said, I'm really busy, much to do. He could have said, life is good, I don't need any surprises. He could have said, let someone else figure this out, someone who's an expert on burning bushes that do not burn. And he would have missed his calling, his destiny, the very reason for which he was born. Lesson three, deliverers turn aside from ordinary life to hear the voice of God. They notice They turn aside. Thankfully, he turns aside, and in doing so, he meets God face to face, or face to burning bush. The Lord told him, I have seen the oppression of my people Israel. I have heard their cries of distress because of their harsh slave drivers. Yes, I am aware of their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and lead them out of the land of Egypt into their own fertile and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. God has not forgotten or abandoned his people. Hope is not lost. It's time. It's time for one of the greatest rescue missions ever in human history. So massive in proportion that when we say the word exodus, we understand it in the context of a nation being delivered from slavery to go to a a home, a promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Verse 9, we read, Look, the cry of the people of Israel has reached me, and I've seen how harshly the Egyptians abuse them. Go now, for I am sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people out of Egypt. I love this. I love the way God does this. Oh, by the way, I'm sending you. I mean, he's just going on and on. And, oh, by the way, I'm sending you. Almost an afterthought. Moses is caught up in the moment, you know? Yeah, these people need to be rescued. Great. About time you do something about this. They need a deliverer. You're right. It's time. It would be awesome to see the way you're going to do that. Neighbors sound a little weird. Hittites, Amorites, Jebusites, Parasites, Cellulites, whatever. All these people. But but I know you can handle it, God. You're God. Wait, what? You're sending me? 
What? No, 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 no. It was really going well until you said that. Forget that noise. Fourth lesson. Deliverers are not necessarily extraordinarily brave. They're just willing to be used the way God wants to use them. Please don't think that Moses was doing this because he was the bravest guy in the desert. If that was the case, probably should have sent his wife or someone else. They were far braver. In fact, if you look at the story up till now, all the brave people in the story have been women, right? Not been Moses. We might find what follows to be disappointing. We do not see a man of legendary mythical proportion accepting with great vigor the ultimate challenge to single-handedly rescue this nation so desperate for a hero. No, instead we find a guy who makes excuses, a reluctant hero, minus the hero. Actually, you know what we see? We see a human. He's you and me. He's not a hero. He's a human. A real person with real fears and real apprehensions and real doubts and real reluctance to get involved. He's us. He says, God, I got five reasons that you should pick someone else. First, who am I? I mean, why me? Second, who are you? Uh, why, why, should, why should anybody listen? And then he says, so what if they won't listen? Third objection. God's response is, throw your staff on the ground. He does it. It becomes a snake. And by the way, when you look at what God says, what does he say? Pick up the staff, the snake, by the tail. I don't know if you've ever picked up a snake. Personally, I avoid it. But if you're going to pick up a snake, you don't pick up a snake by the tail. You pick it up right by the head. In fact, you stomp the head, and then you pick it up and throw it away. But even in this, God is proving, I am trustworthy. Pick it up. See what happens. Objection for speaking is not one of my core competencies. I don't have what it takes, God. Ever said that to him? Finally, having exhausted all of his best reasons, he just finally says, please send someone else. Just send someone else. Well, we know from history that Moses accepts the challenge. He follows God. And what follows is a whirlwind of victories and defeats, advances and setbacks that feel a lot like real life. Ironically, the rescue begins in earnest in the place where he was rescued. The place reminds Moses of his own name. In the first plague, he returns to the river of blood and turns it into a river of blood. God brings 10 supernatural plagues on the people of Egypt to break the stubborn grip of Pharaoh. We don't have time to study them in depth, but each of the plagues is a direct affront of one of the false gods of Egypt, the gods they worshipped. Pharaoh himself claimed to be a god, and he could not stop the plagues. I mean, you got to understand this. God was not arbitrary in heaven thinking, how can I torture these people? I know frogs. Let's do frogs. That's not the way it worked. Each of them was a deliberate tool to say, your God is not a God at all. Your God is worthless. Your God has no power. There is only one God who has power, the God who created the universe, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and Moses. That's the only God who's worthy of worship. And in chapter 12, we read that the people are released after the 10th and final plague. Mission accomplished. 430 years of foreign travel comes to an end. It is time to go home, back to Israel, back to the land of promise, back to the land of flowing with milk and honey. Who is the deliverer? God. 
God. And just in case that's unclear, just in case Moses has gotten a little confused, just in case the people are thinking Moses is the man, God says, let me prove one more time who the deliverer is. And so they start out on their march and they come up against something called a big old Red Sea. And the Egyptians are behind and the water is before. And God says, watch this. And he reminds them that he is the ultimate deliverer. Final lesson, God is the hero. Every delivery is totally dependent on him. When we get the privilege of being used in a delivery process, you know what we do? We say, he did it. I just got lucky to be part of the process. He did it. He did it. God did it. From what Pharaoh do you need to be delivered today? God is your deliverer. God is your hope. Is God calling you to be a deliverer today? What's holding you back? I suspect both with our need to be delivered as well as the need to step up and be a deliverer, the same thing enters in again and again and again. Fear. Fear. We let fear grips our hearts. While we theoretically know God can handle it, we allow fear to hold us back. It certainly held back Moses, didn't it? Fear held him back. I read a story this past week, actually an obituary, of a man named Jack Nagel. He died just recently at 96. A Jewish man who survived the Holocaust spent time in two of the most notorious prison camps in World War II. Comes out, all of his family is dead, and he gets to start life all over again. And I'm reading through the details of his story, and you come to the end of his story, and, and it has a line that he wrote in, in, a, in a book he published. He said, one sure guarantee of a mediocre life is a life lived in fear. I suspect for a lot of us, our Pharaoh is fear. And I suspect for a lot of us, the thing that keeps us from stepping up in the delivery process is fear. Welcome to a life of mediocrity. It is not that Moses stopped being fearful. I suspect that when he threw this, the, the staff on the ground, he wondered, is God going to do it or not? He just knew that despite his fear, he could trust God, the ultimate deliverer. And so the question today really is, will we trust God? Despite our fear, will we trust him? Now, Father God in heaven, I thank you for the beautiful reminder of this historical event. It happened. It really happened. And it happened so that we could be reminded not that Moses was amazing, but that you are amazing. That you are all powerful. That the God of Moses is the God of Southfield. The God of the Israelites is the God of every person sitting here and today who has trusted Jesus as forgiver of sin and leader of life. Help us to trust you despite our fears. In Jesus' name, amen. So I don't do this often, but I just want to say next week, next week is a really important message. I hope you will not miss it. 
And when I say what it's about, you're going to say, really? We're going to be talking about Leviticus. <laughs> We're going to be talking about the law. And I'll tell you what, I think that the law and an understanding of how the law works and what the laws are, there are so many modern Christians that get stumbled up on this. And if you'll understand what the law of God is all about, uh, you'll finally be able to offer a defense in some of those moments where you find yourself going, eh, 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 I don't know, I don't read Leviticus. So I hope you'll be back next week. Enjoy your week, we'll see you.